The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson. And today we are delighted to have the opportunity to record with Dr. Jason Allen. Uh, Dr. Jason Allen serves as the fifth president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, and is one of the youngest presidents in all of American higher education. In addition to his role as president, Dr. Allen serves the institution in the classroom as professor for preaching and pastoral ministry. Uh, Before coming to Midwestern Seminary, Dr. Allen served as a pastor and as a senior administrator at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Hey guys, I'm delighted to be with you and uh, appreciate your ministries and the ministry through this podcast. And uh, just have been looking forward to this for some time and glad we're able to pull it off. Amen. To start off our discussion, we're going to be talking about godly leadership. So what are some traits or characteristics that someone must have to be considered a godly leader? Yeah, and that's a great question. And boy, is it an urgent one as well. We, uh, we read on a near daily basis of ministries imploding. And every time I, I read of one of those episodes, frankly, it scares me to death. I quake in my shoes. Uh, I don't sleep well at night. And I generally sleep pretty well at night. Uh, Not much keeps me awake. But when I read of a minister falling, oftentimes I will not sleep well later that evening because it scares me to death because I am mindful of, you know, uh, that we are fallen creatures. And but for the grace of God, so would our course be as well. And so we don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to have the story of a ministry fall that blows up my family, that sullies God's reputation in the community, that destroys a church or two. And then in my personal circumstances, which uh, would bring profound disruption, disappointment to the institution God has entrusted to me to lead. So this is an urgent question. Uh, It's an important question. It's a paramount question for all those who are in ministry. You framed it around basically uh, what does it take to be a, a godly leader or godly man? Well, uh, not to be cute, but but it takes godliness, right? And that phrase of godly man or man of God, we see oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see Paul refer to Timothy as a man of God in the New Testament. And that is an aspiration that each one of us and your listeners should aspire unto. Now, for me, when I think of that godly characteristic or the characteristic of godliness, my mind races to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 1 through 7, where we see the qualifications of, of the elder, the qualifications for the pastor. And you look at that list, and there are matters of, of personal disposition, uh, matters of, 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 of personality, we might say, uh, patterns of righteousness that we are to cultivate. And so whatever brings you or whatever whatever kind of contextual backdrop brings you into First Timothy chapter 3, you see this listing of character qualifications and that as one is those things in Christ and lives up to those ideals in Christ, I think it's appropriate to uh, label that person as, as being godly, as being marked by godliness. Conversely, if we fail to live up to those, 
And especially if we fail, not episodically, but routinely, not as a bad moment, but as a pattern of life, then we are really not able to be classified as being a godly man. And as such, we are not able to uh, to be classified as a faithful minister or one qualified for gospel ministry based upon those expectations. Now, now lest we think too narrow about it, we, we remember that as we look more deeply into 1 Timothy 3 and read, read further in the following verses, uh, where Paul begins to unpack what it means to be a, a qualified deacon, we see a, a very similar, almost identical list of qualifications. The primary difference being the elder must be qualified to teach, gifted to teach. Uh, the deacon doesn't have to have the gift of teaching. So what do we conclude from that? We conclude that elders and pastors, those who are exercising spiritual leadership in the church, and deacons, those who are serving the church, all are expected by God to be individuals of character, individuals of moral uprightness, individuals of godliness. So I can measure my personal godliness by how my life is aligning with these character traits in 1 Timothy 3. And we must remember those character traits as listed in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, They are not a one-time threshold to cross as one enters the ministry, but they're there as a source of ongoing accountability uh, to God's word and to God's people. Uh, with those considerations in mind, we want to transition to uh, you specifically. Since your presidency at Midwestern began, you have led the institution to become one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America. Uh, So the question is twofold. What are some of the biggest difficulties of leading an institution that grows so quickly? And what are some of the joys of this experience that you have as you lead? Yeah, so I just spent five minutes talking about godliness. Now, now you're going to entice me to speak from pride. <laughs> the here. No, uh, you're so kind in how you frame the question. Look, look, God has been really, really kind to us here at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, I was elected president in October of 2012, so I'm, I'm now pretty deep into my eighth year. And it's been an exhilarating ride. Uh, the year before I came, the seminary had about 1,100 students. This year we are in. Uh, we'll finish the academic year well north of 4,000 students. So, so we're, we're kind of brushing up against quadrupling over the past eight years, or really more like the past six or seven years. And look, that has presented real opportunities. It, it has brought some, some challenges, some growing pains along the way. That those challenges and those opportunities, we have to situate contextually. And contextually, the world of higher education in North America, whether it's universities, colleges, or seminaries, faces very stiff headwinds, uh, demographic headwinds, uh, financial headwinds, uh, as relates to seminaries, challenges that most supporting denominations, virtually all supporting denominations of seminaries are shrinking, not growing. Unfortunately, Southern Baptist Convention, the past 10 years or so has been in a state of numerical decline as well. So there are a lot of challenges going on there. And those headwinds make our story uh, all the more anomalous, uh, all the more unusual, that, that we're not merely, that we're not shrinking or merely, let's say, kind of holding our own numerically, but that God has grown us so much. And so for us, we've had to, every step of the way, make sure we're operating with, with kind of faith-filled realism, uh, faith-filled realism, realistic about the context we're in, realistic about the fact that past growth doesn't ensure future growth, Realistic about the fact that, look, we serve a denomination and we serve more broadly an evangelical movement that most of those churches are plateaued or declining. Uh, now, as you and I, as we had this conversation, the three of us, uh, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. And my goodness, the, 
the disruption that is bringing to churches and to the national economy and so forth. So there's just a lot of headwinds that are challenging. But God has been pleased to bless the seminary. Why? I think that goes back uh, primarily to three words for the church that we have sought and we do seek to be fanatically committed to serving local churches, training pastors, training ministers, training evangelists, training servants for the church. And, And that vision God has chosen to bless and more broadly, that vision has resonated with uh, the churches we serve. And so our constituency, which is the Southern Baptist Convention, and then we draw about 20 or so percent of our students from non-SBC, but other evangelical churches and denominations. Uh, our constituencies see that vision, appreciate that vision, and send us students uh, in light of that vision. So with all that does come some challenges. The challenges are um, not knowing what the future is going to hold, trying to rightly staff and minister to those students and in concert with that growth without overstaffing, understanding that the headwinds are stiff. And the future for every institution, Midwestern Seminary and otherwise, is doubtlessly a challenging one in light of these headwinds. At the same time, though, it's profoundly joy-filled to be recognized uh, virtually every year the past five or so years as being the fastest or one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America. Uh, It's profoundly rewarding to see a vision give birth to a reality that faculty and staff are drawn here to minister for the church. Students are drawn here because of that vision for the church. And to see it begin now to be returned back to churches as students have come here, been trained, been graduated, and been sent out. And so it, it, it's, it's exhilarating because of the challenges. It's profoundly rewarding because of the fruit of our labors. You have experience both pastoring in a local church and at the seminary, as we have been speaking, you you train pastors to go into churches and your seminary's vision is for the church. So what encouragement or advice do you have for pastors like Austin and I striving to become better leaders? Uh, you were so kind to ask. Look, I, I spend a lot of time leading um, I'm writing a book on leadership that'll be coming out here in a couple of years with B&H. And so I, I do spend a good deal of time thinking about leadership. But I will tell you guys, as I've said in other settings, I, I do have a love-hate relationship with the leadership industry, or what I refer to as the leadership industrial complex, playing off of Dwight Eisenhower's uh, critical assessment of the military industrial complex. And, and that assessment goes something like this. Uh, never in the field of human history, have we had so many books, conferences, materials, resources, podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, on the topic of leadership. But it seems like we're at this unique moment in church history and in national history where there's a dearth of leaders. I mean, right now, Washington is uh, kind of a zoo. Right now, so many churches are struggling due to a, a failure of leadership. We referenced some of this at the beginning of the conversation today. Right, many, right now, many Christian institutions are suffering from a, a lack of strong convictional leadership. Moreover, when you look at the great histories, uh, the great leaders in history, again, whether it's military, political, church history, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Winston Churchill in the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt, JFK, Ronald Reagan, whoever is your, your favorite political leader. And then you think of military leaders like, like George Patton or Douglas MacArthur, what have you. Um, All of those great leaders who made their mark did so before the proliferation of leadership resources and materials. I mean, somehow Martin Luther led the Reformation without reading a book on leadership. (laughs) So my point in all that is to say leadership is primarily convictional, largely intuitive, 
certainly contextual about where God has planted you and in that season of service. And then we just show up and prayerfully, humbly try to lead and exert influence in all the healthy and right ways. So again, I have a love-hate relationship with leadership. Um, it's important, but we're in a unique season where we have all these resources, but there seems to be a, a dearth of leadership. Now to your leaders, I want to say, or to your, to, to your listeners, I want to say, my takeaway is not that we should not be intentional about leadership. Actually, the opposite. My takeaway is that we should be very intentional about leading in the context that God has placed us for his glory in a way that is consonant with his word and that honors the stewardship he has entrusted to us. To do that, we have to right size and appropriately tune out what is the cacophony of noise from the leadership industrial complex that so very often wants to influence the church and influence ministers. And before you know it, you can find yourself thinking and acting and leading like a, uh, a leader of a corporation or some secular industry or some secular endeavor. We have to be very careful to make sure our leadership is biblical and convictional, not, uh, not corporate and organizational. Uh, when the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic began, and uh, began to affect the s- a seminary and local churches, uh, we noticed that you became very proactive in your responses on social media. So how can pastors and other ministry leaders use social media and other technology to minister to their churches during these uh, unprecedented times? Yeah, thank you. I-, I had this conversation earlier today with a colleague here. I praise God for modern technology. I really do. Now, look, I can I can be a critic of it. I get irritated by it. I mean, text messages have a way of buzzing at all the wrong times. You know, I guess too many people know my email addresses. I get more emails daily than, I, than any human being should get, and I'm forced to deal with those. Social media is kind of an irritant. I mean, anyone anywhere can show up in your life and begin to say unkind things at you. Uh, so, you know, of course, the Internet, the distraction it brings and the challenges it poses relates to pornography and other things. So, all of that technology in some ways is a hindrance to our life, in some ways is, is unhealthy to our lives. At the same time, though, those technologies have been able to a host of things. So let's rewind COVID-19, let's say 30 years. Let's say back to the year 1990. If COVID-19 hit in 1990 and I was here, let's think about what would happen. First of all, I would have no way to complete the semester or teach classes because online technology didn't exist. So I would just have to dismiss students, say, go home and we can't gather. And in God's timing, whether it's next semester, next year or the year after, we will hope to reconstitute ourselves here. I didn't have to do that because of technology. I could actually move residential classes to online without really missing too much. I mean, we missed the the, the residential in-person component. Please hear me. We missed that dramatically. But as far as conveying knowledge, we were able to move to that new technology, move classes to online formats without shutting down everyone's lives for weeks on ends to engineer that. It happened pretty quickly. What is more, uh, we were able to communicate that quickly. I've communicated more through social media and video updates to students and our constituencies and email blasts and all the rest through, through technology in ways we could not have done 30 years ago. I mean, 30 years ago, communications took place to tele- through telephone trees. The first church I pastored. Uh, which was in the 90s. It was in the year 2002. And 
you know, email was a thing, but it wasn't a big thing. And our church still had kind of an old fashioned uh, a prayer tree or prayer chain or telephone trees. And so you one person calls these three people. Most three people calls the, call those three people. And that's how you spread urgent news through the church. We don't have to do that anymore. Finally, you think of churches. And like for me, these past few weeks, my family and I, we have been uh, worshiping online with our local church. And again, it's not in person. There are ecclesiological distinctions there. We want to maintain in our minds and hearts. But we're able to, able to, in some sense, at least receive the preaching of the word and, and worship with our church family, receive updates. And 30 years ago, we couldn't do that. Church members just be home for weeks on end, unable to in any way really be fed or ministered the word of God in any real time sense. So, again, technology at times can be an irritant for all of us, but I praise God for the technology. We're seeking to use it here for God's glory, and we're seeing the ministry of the church and of the seminary really sustained and extended during this season through the technology. Can you speak, just pivoting a little bit back again to to you personally, can you speak of the influence that Steve Lawson had on your life as a leader? Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, today is Steve's 69th birthday, and he and I were texting earlier today, kind of a happy birthday uh, text. I guess today's what April 13th, April yeah April 13th, and uh, he's been he's been very kind to me. What is more, I was working on a book project earlier this morning that's coming out with Moody Press next year, entitled "Succeeding in Seminary." And basically for seminary students, those going to seminary, and it just touches on everything from how to grow spiritually to how to plan your finances, to how to pick a seminary, the classes to take, et cetera. Anyway, I was writing in one of the chapters in that book, I was writing about uh, about Steve's friendship and mentorship in my life many years ago. I met Dr. Lawson in 1997. Uh, I think that was the year about then when I was a college athlete. He was pastoring at Dolphin Way Baptist Church. And I had basketball practice on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, but I could go to church there and then zip across the street to my college and, and get dressed real quick for practice. And so I could go to church and, and get to practice in time. And I immediately began to fall in love with his expository preaching. Uh, he was very kind to me, took an interest in me. Over the course of the next year, I began wrestling with the call to ministry. He helped to, for me to suss that out and to clarify that. And he began to affirm that. He brought me on staff for three years. I served there from 1998 to 2001 with him. I was assistant to the pastor. The primary role had a couple of other secondary roles over those three years. Uh, He married my wife and I, and he has just been a great friend ever since. We talk often. We text often. uh, We encourage one another in the things of the Lord, and we have many common interests as well. So how did he shape me? First and foremost, he, he created in me a love for expository preaching. Secondly, I think he more um, more implicitly than explicitly instructed me in how to uh, to channel my drivenness into healthy God honoring ways. Um, that it's appropriate to work hard and to be driven for the Lord and for the gospel, uh, not in a corporate or secular sense, but to actually take that ambition and to channel it in ways that are healthy for the kingdom. Uh, thirdly, just basic, some basic realities of leading a church staff and how to even lead a staff meeting and how to organize your life. And, and just some of it, because I was at such a unique age there, my senior year in college and two years out of college, just a, a number of life skills I kind of picked up from him. And then other observations as far as decision making and, and how to write and writing projects. He was very helpful as well. So think the world of Dr. Lawson. I love him dearly. Um, again, I, I cannot give him enough praise for his kind of influence in my life. 
Well, in mentioning Dr. Lawson, it's obvious that uh, no man of God is his own self-made person. There is uh, the need for other people to pour into uh, younger people. And so who are some other influences that you can think of that have poured into you to make you the leader that you are? Yeah, well, the big two clearly would be Steve Lawson and Al Mohler. I left serving with Dr. Lawson to go to seminary at Southern Seminary in the fall of 2001. I had gotten to know Dr. Moeller through Dr. Lawson previously. So I went to to Louisville with Dr. Moeller as a friend and advocate. And um, he he was very kind, took an interest in me in my in-depth studies, gave me different opportunities on campus. Um, Then he hired me to work for him as assistant to the president in January of 2006, where I served in that role for three and a half years. Then another another three or so years as VP, um, overseeing advancement and kind of alumni programs on campus there. And so every step of the way, uh, he was just a very dear friend. He remains a good friend. And again, we text or uh, talk on nearly on a daily basis. Uh, we see the world similarly. We see leadership sim- similarly. We see the church similarly. We see theological education sim- similarly. So we have a lot in common. And um, those two have been the primary ministerial influences in my life, hands down. You are the author of several books, some that you've mentioned already, one of them being Letters to My Students on Preaching, Volume 1. Can you talk about the upcoming volumes in this series and your goal in writing them? So that is a three-volume series, Volume 2, Letters to My Students on Pastoring, and then Volume 3, Letters to My Students on Life and Doctrine playing off of 1 Timothy 4, 16. So that's a, a three-volume set. And look, I, I love Spurgeon, like I guess all self-respecting ministers do, but we have a double love for Spurgeon here. We have the Spurgeon Library where we have on display over 6,000 of his books and artifacts. I mean, it's a special treasure we have here. And look, Spurgeon's you know lectures to my students has helped many a minister, including me. And so I began to dream about a project that would, would kind of be in a similar vein of, of, of lectures to my students. What is more, I found myself teaching classes and responding to email and writing articles on topics that that are recurring about ministry, about the life of the minister, about the call to ministry and so forth. So I began to kind of catalog these and collect these and began to dream about a way to to create a a set that's similar to lectures to my students, but in a 21st century model. And so that's what we're doing. First volume, letters to my students on preaching. Second volume, letters to my students on pastoring. Third volume, uh, Letters to My Students on Life and Doctrine. Like Spurgeon, uh, they're part biblical, part practical, part experiential. Uh, It's like me literally having a group of young ministers I'm mentoring or speaking into their lives. And so I'm seeking to do that. And then when the project is all completed, uh, we have ambitions to roll up my three volumes uh, into a volume with Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students into kind of one collector's edition set. So we're looking forward to having that project uh, come together in the next few years and having a bow on it, hopefully in three or four years. This isn't in our questions that we sent you, but... Uh, oh, these are the best kind. We, we don't like <laughs> the scripted questions. You said something in your first book that really resonated with both Jimmy and I, uh, that being a pastor is like being in finals week every single week. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and truth be known, I probably heard that from Steve Lawson first because he and I, in conversation years ago, would reflect on that as it relates to the the sermon prep process. Every preacher prepares his sermon, you know, his own way, I guess. 
but I have never been the kind of guy that like Monday could be my sermon prep day and I, I get the sermon done and just put it up and forget about it for six days. That's totally not me. For me, Sunday is like the great big deadline of life and Sunday morning or whenever the next preaching responsibility is. And every day it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and dominates my thinking, dominates my thinking, dominates my thinking. And so for me, the analogy is when I was in college, you know, the exhilaration of final exam week and, and, and hustling and getting up early and staying up late and cramming, cramming and all that to do my very best. That sensation, both exhilaration and the panic and everything in between that I felt in final exam week, I feel kind of with every sermon. And it, it, as, as the hour gets closer, my, my focus intensifies, my, my commitment intensifies, my sense of exhilaration. And again, my sense of panic maybe intensifies depending upon where I'm in the sermon prep process and to whom I'm preaching and the text I'm wrestling with and a host of other variables, I, I feel that. And then, and then when the sermon's done, it's behind me after I preach it, I feel that same sense of, of kind of holy relief and holy accomplishment and holy fatigue. And then you kind of wake up again. And before you know it, like Sunday, six days away, and you're back in that cycle again and, and you're, you're racing at it again. I mean, I've pastored and been interim pastor from, of many churches um, about altogether about 15 years between pastoring and interim, interim pastoring, I suppose. And look, I, I've never outgrown that. I haven't. I've never outgrown that sensation. I've never outgrown that that feeling of Sunday is coming. And uh, I'm a steward of God's word for God's people. And the pressure and exhilaration still is within me now that I've been in ministry over 20 years. There's probably many pastors that are going to be listening to this that are going to be feeling exactly what you just mentioned. So thank you for speaking to that. Uh, but our next question is, during your presidency, the undergraduate name Midwestern College was changed to Spurgeon College, and you mentioned uh, the Spurgeon Library being at M Midwestern. Uh, can you further speak to this name change, and how can the ministry of Spurgeon help people become more godly leaders? Yeah, so the college here was founded in the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s. So before I came and it was named Spur, uh, Midwestern College, um, just like Midwestern Seminary. And so it was kind of a, you know, a benign name, nothing wrong with it, but, but not unique or not very descriptive as to who we were. And the college just kind of floated along underneath the broader rubric of the seminary for about a decade. Well, I, I had a vision when I came here to expand the undergraduate program, but also I was aware of of other more pressing institutional needs. So the early years were you know, really built upon investing in the MDiv program and growing other programs, waiting until the timing was right to really relaunch the college. Well, what made the right timing? Having enough institutional health and momentum to be able to do it, A. B, um, having the faculty and the team here we needed to do it. And then C, having the campus amenities to really more fill out a undergraduate program. So us, God gave us things like a $13 million student center, which you really need to have a legitimate on-campus college program. So that has gymnasium, cafeteria, bookstore, classrooms, exercise areas, recreation areas, all the rest. God gave us you know, the housing that we needed to, to launch a more serious undergraduate college. God gave us uh, other facilities here on campus in addition to the student center, other renovation projects that enabled us to have really all, all the, the needs to, to make a renewed effort at the college program. And so we began to pray about and dream about what would be a good name. Spurgeon's convictions um, seem to very much represent who we are 
the name recognition associated with it was attractive. The name identification with Spurgeon with uh, Midwestern Seminary and Charles Spurgeon made sense. And then <clears throat> so we, we took off and launched it. And, you know, you have to remember that Spurgeon oversaw not just the Metropolitan Tabernacle, not just, you know, the pastor's college, but he over- oversaw during his lifetime about 66 different ministries, different initiatives. And so what would it like for us to train a generation of students, not just through the seminary, but through the college, maybe they're getting a business degree or communications degree or intercultural studies degree, what have you. But in so doing, they're also getting a minor or a a double major in in biblical studies or Christian ministry or theology. And they're equipped to go out into these many different sectors of life, a la Spurgeon with these 66 different ministries and kind of create a ministry in the workplace, in their small business, in the classroom. Uh, wherever God calls them to be, they're able to create a ministry or a mission setting opportunities there, much like Spurgeon. So that's a part of the rationale, Austin. And uh, we launched it. God has been good to us. The college has grown and uh, sending students our way who resonate with the vision for the college and uh, resonate with with the name Spurgeon himself. I have another off script question for you, um, since you seem to like those. Um so both us and I are pastors in a rural area, and, and something that I ran into at first is there's sometimes, and this probably isn't everywhere, at least what I ran into is skepticism around a, a formally trained pastor, like the formally trained pastorate. So could you answer what the benefits are of having a, a trained pastorate, as I believe James P. Boyce spoke of when he was starting Southern? Yeah. So let's touch on that. First of all, I, I would frame it for your people or who or who would ask by saying something like this. What would you desire an untrained pastor? In other words, I, I get the fact that there may be in some places a stigma associated with a formal theological certificate or formal theological training. But I think if you can press them to think more clearly about it, surely they don't want a minister who is fundamentally unlearned who is fundamentally untaught in the scriptures. Paul said things to Timothy like, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman unashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul said things to Timothy like, like pay attention to your life and your doctrine, right? In so doing, you ensure salvation for yourself and for your hearers. So to, so to take just a, a, a both a common sense and a biblical approach with people who would offer that criticism and say, okay, let's be, let's think more clearly about this. Surely you actually don't want a minister who is untaught in the scriptures. Okay. And I think most reasonable people would, would conclude, okay, I'm with you there. So then the question is, well, what type of training should one get? We acknowledge there are bad seminaries out there. There are good seminaries. There are liberal seminaries. There are conservative seminaries. So I, I, a part of me resonates with the concern that a seminary can ruin a minister because Many ministers have been ruined by seminaries, but that's where I want to reassure those people. Ensure those, uh, reassure those people that here's why Midwestern Seminary is a seminary worth you trusting, because every professor believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, because every professor believes in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, because every professor believes the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, every professor believes in the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, every professor believes the Nashville Statement on Human Sexuality and Gender. So, in other words, I know that's all a mouthful. But every theological guardrail we can bring to the table, we've brought. 
And so to help people to see who may be generally suspicious of the of, of, of formal theological education, that there are healthy places who have trained healthy men and women of God who have been used mightily by God. There, of course, we all know examples of ministers who do not have formal training from Charles Spurgeon to Martin Lloyd-Jones and others. But as I tell people, those men were geniuses. You're not. Uh, those men were used by God and praise God for others like them. And I have learned, I have been taught by ministers, by pastors who did not have formal theological uh, education, and I praise God for them. They shaped me profoundly. So I'm not one of these people who like dismisses a minister doesn't have training, uh, formal training, not at all. I have learned from them. But I would drive it home and say, surely you want your ministers to be trained, and surely there has to be faithful seminaries out there. In fact, I know of one in Kansas City, and I can name others beyond Kansas City. We praise God for those appoint students <laughs> to them. Now, lastly, you mentioned uh, James P. Boyce, and of course, uh, the, the the founding father of Southern Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina, then moved uh, 1877 to Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, Boyce, you know, his vision for theological education was bigger than Southern Seminary. It was Southern Baptist founding vision for theological education. And he delivered that famous address in 1956 to the faculty at Furman University entitled, you know, Three Changes in Theological Education. And it was three changes. One was that institutions should be confessional institutions. Even in 1856, we had seen Northern seminaries and Northern colleges drift into theological liberalism. And so a faculty had to have a confessional commitment that was understandable and coherent and taught and enforced. Secondly, a seminary should uh, should offer the, the highest training possible, receiving students who've been classically trained when they come and teaching them to the highest standards available. But third, um, also able to produce a, a, a large ministry because there are many churches in great need and so willing to accept students if they don't have a formal training when they came, when they come, take them where they are and equip them from where they are to receive the very best training they personally can receive or equipped to receive and then to send them out. And that vision is still there. I mean, Midwestern Seminary, Southern Seminary, those three things exist. Confessional integrity, professors who sign and believe these confessional statements that I've referenced. Secondly, the highest level degrees offering. We have the PhD degree. We have professors and faculty who study at the great European universities of Aberdeen and St. Andrews and Cambridge. And, and then here stateside, great universities here in, in America as well. But also we have we are open to every person who has been called to ministry, who's been affirmed by their local church, and they can give credible testimony to the grace of God in their life, to moral integrity, regardless of where they come from. Now, they can't, if you don't have a college degree, you can't get into the master's program, but you can get into a certificate program. There are degrees available regardless of where one is coming from. And so that's a part of the sweetness of my work. We offer the highest programs imaginable, taught by the most accomplished faculty imaginable, all the way down to the most accessible degree program, certificate programs available to anyone from any background and everything in between. Amen. And this next question is very much related to the one that I just asked. We've we've had a few different seminary presidents on, and we've given each one of them a chance to give a plug for the institution that they represent. So, even speaking to me, I'm, I'm about to graduate from Southern with my MDiv. Why should someone like me or, or another one desiring further theological training consider MBTS? 
Yeah, let me answer that. Before I do it, I'm going to briefly say a specific word of commendation <clears throat> about every Southern Baptist seminary. How's that for to, to turn the question on its head? So I'm first <laughs> going to tell you why you attend the other five. And then I'm going to tell you especially why I'm grateful what God's doing here. I love Southern Seminary. I did two degrees from there. I've always been a friend. It's got a great faculty, a great history. Um, nothing negative to say about it. Southeastern Seminary. Uh, what can I say about them? I mean, they, they are have such a great heart for the nations, and they have worked hard to position themselves both in word and in deed as a great commission seminary. And so every time I'm on that campus, I am uh, encouraged accordingly. New Orleans Seminary, uh, a seminary in a difficult city that has rich ministry opportunities uh, with a, a great reach on the Gulf Coast and able to impact many churches in the heart of Southern Baptist life. Uh, their new president, Jamie Dew, is a delightful individual. I've got to know him well. He has a servant's heart, which uh, just positions him so strongly to lead so well. And so I'm very bullish on the future of New Orleans Seminary. Uh, Southwestern Seminary in Texas, uh, similarly a great institution, just over 100 years old, founded by founded by B.H. Carroll out of the Baylor School of Religion. And uh, an institution with a rich history, a huge alumni base, tra- uh, traditionally known as kind of the revivalistic seminary in Southern Baptist life. The seminary that was throughout the bulk of the 20th century, the most conservative Southern Baptist seminary. They're under new leadership now, and they're doing uh, great work for the Lord in Fort Worth. And then, of course, Gateway. Out on the West Coast, we often overlook Gateway because they're so far removed geographically. But they are there at the intersection of, of the cultural transition and changes. Uh, the, the student body is very diverse demographically, very ethnically diverse. And it's a sweet thing to see is that really is a foreshadowing in so many ways of where America is going. But they're making a real impact uh, on the West Coast. And Jeff Orge is a very get- capable leader as well, doing a wonderful job. And so we're blessed to have seminaries in five and six different cities that are worthy of our attendance and worthy uh, of our studying at. I'm per- personally profoundly grateful for Midwestern Seminary. A few things I would say, first of all, uh, the vision for the church is a compelling vision for a seminary. I believe the most compelling vision a seminary can have. Secondly, I would say, look, um, we've as we talked about earlier, nearly quadrupled in size. That doesn't mean everything, but it means something. It does show momentum. It shows God's kind providence. It shows the fact that there are a lot of uh, satisfied customers out there, put that phrase in quotes, but a lot of students and graduates who love what we're doing here and have resonated with and are coming by the droves because of it. Look, our faculty, I believe, is second to none. And, and I couldn't say that when I came here. We have some great faculty members here, but we've been able to add to that faculty and, and up our game. And so I, I say that with integrity. I believe our faculty is second to none. And they also tend to be generationally on the younger side. And so the Matthew Barris, the Owen Strands, the Jason Deucings, the Jared Wilsons, the John Mark Yates, I mean, the Jason DeRoshis, I mean, the Andreas Kostenbergers. I mean, the kind of the names keep coming up, incredible talent that got us positioned here. Most of those are kind of ages 35 to 45. And so we're fired up about the, the, the opportunity to do this together generationally. And then you get into practicalities like the fact that Kansas City is a great city. Uh, our tuition rate is really low. I mean, our doctoral programs, you mentioned, look at the tuition rate. It's very low compared to other institutions, SBC and non-SBC. And so all that matters because we believe for us to serve the church most effectively, we need our students to be able to come and study and make it through their course of study as quickly as possible. And one way you help that is by making your tuition as affordable as possible so students aren't saddled by having to work 60 hours a week or having to incur a bunch of debt on their way through the course of study. So 
I'm grateful for what God is doing at all six Southern Baptist seminaries. I'm grateful for what God is doing at Trinity and at RTS and at Dallas and Gordon Conwell and Masters and, and of those in Fuller and of those six numbers I just named, the non-SBC, some of those are healthier than others. But my point is there are, you know, we're really blessed in America to have a number of healthy seminaries. Midwestern is one of those, praise God. And we're grateful for every student that comes our way because I see in that not just a name, not just a source of tuition revenue, but a call to ministry and a minister who is entrusting us with helping them shape and inform and nurture that call and that preparation for ministry service. Dr. Allen, we are very thankful for you to take your time today and record this episode with us. Uh, We wish you the best at Midwestern Seminary, and you're certainly in our prayers. We thank you very much again. Thank you, guys. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, Head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.